we need systemic change and structural change, but also on a personal level, for our own well-being, we need to be a part of positive change. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A very warm welcome to Purposely. We feature people who have been inspired by purpose. People like Hendrikus van Hensbergen, who is an entrepreneurial conservationist, and in 2012, he was working for one of the largest environmental protection agencies in the world. Him and his colleagues visited a school to talk to young people about the natural world, and that really got him thinking. He eventually left his job and set up his own charity, Action for Conservation. He is now an author. He's a fantastic human being. I really enjoyed our conversation. I think you will as well. Don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe. Enjoy the episode. Hendrikus, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Nice to meet you. You too. You are the founder and CEO of Action for Conservation. What's its mission? What's its purpose? So Action for Conservation's a UK charity. We're a youth environmental action charity. Um, and I say action because we don't just educate, um, we support young people in, in taking action to contribute to solutions to the climate and ecological crisis. So we use pioneering approaches to inspire and empower young people between the ages of 12 and 18, primarily um, to become the next generation of environmentalists. And our vision is that every young person in the UK is moved and empowered to protect the natural world. Wonderful. So it started eight years ago. Tell us about the sort of light bulb moment and also the kind of moment you thought you're on something. So um, it started back when I was working at WWF in a, in a policy role here in the UK, um, working on forests. And an opportunity arose to visit my old secondary school down in Dorset, where I grew up um, on the south coast. And um, yeah, basically, I was sort of invited to talk to a group of um, year nine students, which certainly wasn't on my bucket list. I, I was petrified of the idea of standing in front of a class of, of teenagers and talking about the work that I did, not least because I thought that they wouldn't necessarily be that interested in, in, in what I was doing. If, you know, thinking back to me at that age, I enjoyed spending time outside and I was interested in, in animals, plants and animals, but I, I didn't have any idea about kind of global environmental issues. I had no sense of the scale of the problem. And so I sort of went lazily assuming that they'd be really disengaged with what I did as a job. But anyway, I, I went, I took took some backup in the form of um, some other early career environmentalists who I knew, and we talked about our work. And what I found in, in that one hour session or whatever it was, was just an extraordinary amount of potential um, and interest and inspiration in the room. There were a group of young people who were incredibly aware about all of these big global environmental issues, really interested in the work that we, that we were doing, asking loads of questions. And clearly, you know, there was an appetite to to engage with this and to, to do something about it. Um, but what I also kind of gauged from that experience um, and coming away from it was that, you know, we've, we, we have undergone this massive shift in the past 30, 20 years, perhaps even less, um, from young people who grow up, for the most part, more connected to to nature on their doorstep, able to name species, able to kind of interact with 
um, with nature around them to 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 a childhood that's moved inside much more significantly um, onto screens without necessarily the freedom um, that that children have had in 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 decades gone by. But paradoxically, this this huge awareness through connectivity, through the internet, through social media, with these big issues globally, and the combination of those two things that that lack of kind of connection to nature on your doorstep, the lack of a sense of, you know, agency and ability to take action where you are combined with these huge issues is hugely disempowering. And you could sense it was palpable in that room that, that young, feel, young people felt, you know, like there was this sort of weight and this inability to tackle it. And, you know, that, that was, a, was a kind of powerful motivation for me to, to kind of think about I guess that that generation and and I came away thinking wow what potential but also you know so much needs to be done here to to support young people mm. to to cope with yeah. the future we face and to be a part of the solutions so I looked immediately to the organizations I knew in the sector the one the one I worked in and and, and all of the others and and suddenly there was you know this obvious gap um I assumed I'd be able to start volunteering in my you know uh, in what little free time I had to to work with this age group and none of the big NGOs had any programs for teenagers um there was all this hard work with younger children sort of very ex- experiential learning in nature but then nothing with teenagers and that struck me as really odd and intuitively wrong um that we do all this hard work with young children and then leave teenagers to it and expect environmentalists to pop out the other end when we know that our teenage years are you know, hugely formative. And um, that's where we start to find our tribes, start to form who we are. So yeah, so it grew out of that, I guess that need, that gap, I didn't feel like there was sufficient provision for young people, both in terms of opportunities, but but also opportunities to lead and be a part of be a part of the solution. And before we dive into setting, setting it up and, and taking that step, some things jumped out at me, actually. So girls more in the know about biodiversity which probably didn't shock me but the one that did shock me and and this is um urban kids have more knowledge than rural kids have i got that right yeah that's an old rspb study i mean it's a few years that probably reflects um the need for our website to be updated mark um it's it's probably a a few years out of date now but i i imagine them there might be similar trends now in that um often um or at least comparable trends in urban and, and, and rural areas you know we we assume that a rural upbringing here in the uk and other parts of the world is is one full of nature and connected to nature and in some ways it is but as as children have moved inside uh, as young people have moved inside more in their childhoods and uh, and they are more restricted in um for a variety of reasons in how often they go outside um, i think often that that experience can be amplified in in rural areas you know you might be in the house and get in a car to see any friends and and so those opportunities to sort of engage aren't necessarily there although it would seem that they would be whilst in urban areas you know often and we see this in london um there's much more provision for urban young people and within the schools framework as well there's you know there's much more competition from organizations to work with schools and typically more opportunities uh, and perhaps you know through tr- better public transport and so on the opportunities for families to get out there although that isn't always true and certainly there is a lack of access to green space um for young people predominantly from underrepresented backgrounds in in the sector so there's yeah, there's a really mixed picture, um, but I think the overall trend is clearly one towards 
more disconnection uh, from nature and day-to-day life, but not necessarily more disconnection from the issues and and the willingness and appetite to to tackle them. And reflecting on your own childhood, and you know, you clearly got a passion um, for biodiversity, for the environment, for conservation. What was it like growing up in in your house, and and where did you grow up, and what was your relationship with the environment? Yeah, so I I had um, a relatively nature filled upbringing, which I'm I'm very privileged to have had. I grew up partly in in central Spain, um, between central Spain and um, and Dorset on the southwest coast. I mentioned the Jurassic Coast, both really beautiful places. One mountainous and about as far as you can get from the sea, and the other um, right by it. My family, I'm, I'm a bit of a um, outlier in the sense that they um, they're they're all artists art historians or english lit graduates and so on um uh so i i kind of took the route of of science initially i studied zoology and i think two of my grandparents were scientists and so it sort of skipped to skipped a generation but my parents both really value the outdoors and um my mum was definitely an inspiration to me in in terms of her I suppose her environmental awareness from from a young age so she she really inspired me to to consider these things more within within my life did you understand the fra- fragility of did were you sort of fascinated by the the kind of ecosystems and and do you remember like kind of having clarity at a young age on it or not really no i think i just i love being outdoors um and i was drawn to being outdoors i i my my dream was to from quite a young age was to study zoology as soon as I found out what zoology was. Um, cause I, you know, I, I assumed I'd just be able to study animals for the rest of my life. And, um, for a long time, I wanted to study, um, the behavior of large mammals, wolves in particular. Um, there were wolves where spreading back into the, the, the area where I grew up in Spain and, and it's a, a very wild environment there with, with wild boar and, and vultures. And, and, you know, that, that's what grabbed me much less so the fragility which you know is interesting and then uh, and then i kind of realized i think um as i went through my academic studies that you know that there wasn't a whole lot of point in studying these animals if there weren't the habitats left to to support them um and that every conservation problem is is a human problem and so i i i've been drawn through my career you know um from from zoology and animals to then ended up working with trees the habitats if you like and then realizing that actually it's people um and and so now i find myself working with young people as an inspirational force for good and so that was your own um university of bristol and then on to oxford uni as well doing a msc in biodiversity yeah in biodiversity conservation um which was a really fascinating course both in terms of content but but more so i think in terms of the network it built um for me the course was filled with early career conservationists from all over the world literally all over the world and kind of afc's roots active conservation's roots are are in that course and some of the people there some of the people i mentioned joining me in my old school were from that course right at the beginning um so a lot of credit due to due to that experience for for bringing me together with some really inspirational people who who changed my my perspectives on 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 life and what what i wanted to do because you've you got a first class honors in your degree and, you, and you're going on to Oxford have have you always been a driven person you, you've always been someone who's want to achieve something in life um no I wouldn't say so I think I've um you know at, at school 
I didn't particularly enjoy studying. I, th- I think I, you know, I sort of, I got by, um, but I was a bit of a, a clown, um, class clown at school. And I, you know, I wasn't always the best behaved. You know, I'd rather have been outdoors um, than, than than in the classroom. And then at Bristol, I've, I found, a, well, actually before Bristol, I, I, I travelled and worked on some conservation projects and found a real love for that work um and really once i got to bristol uh, really understood why it was of value and enjoyed it um which i think is the critical thing um if you don't enjoy it it's never you're never going to work hard and so that experience of enjoying it and seeing results was a big kind of education for me and i think that's where i started to yeah, I guess appreciate that with hard work, you know, lots can be achieved. Um, and so, I d- yeah, I don't know where along the way um, I started to feel more and more driven, but that's that's definitely where the seeds were sown. Yeah. And so um, early career getting experience for a, a number of organisations focused on sort of sustainability, but not necessarily thinking, do you know, one day I might start a charity? No, not at all. Um, it, 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 w- it was something that arose out of this this gap I described and a bit of a realisation that, you know, if we're going to avert climate and ecological breakdown, we need to be thinking about the future. We need to, we need to seed a greener and fairer future for everyone um, and we need to move away from short-termism uh, and start to think, you know, and act intergenerationally in deeper time. You know, there's a lack of... A holistic connection to nature and to earth in in our society so we need to kind of restore that sense of biocultural diversity and connection at scale and and start to find well develop and 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 enact both new and existing regenerative solutions to the crisis whether that's kind of borrowing and resurrecting and repurposing those that are happening now or those from the past as well as finding new ones and you know I, i began to kind of appreciate i think as 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 we started to found the charity that historically all those big generational shifts have 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 initiated and shaped some of our biggest social movements um for change and so you know if we if we're going to and it's not by no means the the only way but if we're going to build that greener future we need to place today's young people at the heart of of the conversation about tomorrow's planet you know we need yeah. we need them to be at the heart of the development of these solutions um to the crises the crises we face we need to enable them empower them to be at the heart of action um to ensure that future generations enjoy a you know a diverse and livable future i'm sorry to jump in but you're a young man at this point um, i was quite an altruistic <laughs> thing to do quite an altruistic thing to do and i think that it's it's incredibly hard to start a charity because it's sort of chicken and egg like you you need the funds to to start and sk- just give us a feel for like the early move so you realize that you couldn't do that work when you're with wwf and that you had to go out on your own yeah walk us through that kind of how that played out yeah i mean that's a, a really astute observation i often describe it as chicken and egg because there's a, a, a very practical sense in which it is in that you you couldn't open a, a bank account until you had five thousand pounds to put in it um a charity bank account um, but then most funders wouldn't wouldn't give you money without a bank account. So it's sort of that. How do how do we cross that initial threshold? And so the we started with a crowdfunding campaign, which I really love about us because I think it it speaks to our um, understanding of 
how we work, um, that sense of being grassroots, that sense of leadership from the bottom up um, and, and, and quite a flat structure. Um, so, yeah, we ran this charity, um, uh, this this crowdfunding campaign, and I think we aimed to raise £5,000 for the reason I just mentioned. Um, and we ended up raising seven. So it felt like a real, real success, kind of drawing in um, all of my network works and, and those those around us who were involved was this sort of on just just giving or like kickstarter or it was on crowd crowdfunder uh, a uk platform um who bizarrely are based out of and i didn't know this at the time and maybe they weren't at that point in time but they're they're based in in dorset um where I, where i grew up and where i now live again so um there's a nice connection there too um yeah and yeah i was i was working at wwf i think at some point in within the first year or so, I mean, we were trialing. I mean, I was basically working, you know, daytime at WWF, nighttime, early mornings, getting the charity up and running. Um, and, and we had one part-time employee, Kate, um, who was really instrumental in 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 getting things going with schools. Um, and, you know, I was taking a holiday to, to, to join workshops in schools and so on. It was, you know, it wasn't sustainable and fundraising all the time. And we got to this kind of threshold point where, you know, there was enough money in the bank to start to dedicate some more time to it. And WWF, I went to WWF and asked whether I could go part-time. Um, and just due to the role I had, they, they weren't up for it, which was a shame. Although actually it was the, um, probably the best thing that ever happened to, to me. It forced me to to take the risk, to take the leap. Um, so I left WWF um, and full-time employment for a pay cut. And I think we had about enough money to pay me for six months. Um, so in that period of time, I, I had to make it work or, or not. Yeah. So that was, that was the sort of risk I took at that point. Uh, and looking back, you know, I, I was lucky to be able to take that risk at that point in my life. No, no kids to worry about. No, um, I mean, rent and, and living to worry about. But, yeah. you know, I was kind of prepared to risk that um, at that point. Um, and I'm glad I did. Because a lot of people make that move, but with the promise or the hope of, you know, going public, if they build a company or, uh, yeah. you know, being bought out. Um, you had this sense of purpose and mission. Um, what was the What was the one thing you didn't really know that you wish you'd known? Or, you know, what have you learned since then that actually um you didn't know about starting a charity because you know it wasn't necessarily the only way you could have solved this problem i guess it was no. was it the um obvious way um yeah that's a good question um i mean i mean to be honest there are loads of things i didn't know um uh, that i found out starting a charity is yeah quite an experience um i can remember um when Dame Helen Ghosh joined our board. Um, she was Director General of the National Trust. And yeah, she's she's a member of our trustee board and, and absolutely fantastic. And I can remember her first meeting, we happened to be reviewing all of our charity policies, which runs into the, I don't know, I think there are close to 30 of them now. And I can remember her saying, just reflecting on this and, and saying that had the National Trust been set up now she's not sure it would have happened um given this level of kind of administrative burden on on those early early founders um uh, i think she was quite shocked about how much was was required and and you know i i do tend to take a, a belt and braces approach to these sorts of things and really try to professionalize our, our our systems and processes and make sure we have everything in place but nonetheless it's you know it, it was a challenge yeah so i think realizing you know 
I didn't realise the the sort of level of administrative burden and and, and fundraising um, and financial burden that that um, that would be placed on me. I I definitely enjoy elements of it, but it, it draws a lot of my saps, a lot of my time. Because fundraising is relentless, isn't it? It is. You know, like it the, is. the um quick the to um you know you've got to prove you've got to be working with young people to to make a difference to their lives because that's why you set it up and that's why you're doing it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, you've got to fund all of the costs. Um, yeah. And I I imagine your you know like uh, colleagues or uh, friends from Oxford, some of them going off earning big salaries, being you know hugely successful in commercial roles. That assumption from me, but um. You, you know, you, you find yourself, um, going down another path and, yeah. but you've, you get other things back. Like there's a real sense of satisfaction. You could see it really impacting the children that you welcomed on in those early stages for the programs. Absolutely. Um, you know, the first, when I left WWF, I was, as I said, I was working on policy. I was working with civil servants, government ministers, it was mid austerity. It didn't, yeah, there, there came a point where I sort of felt like, you know, I was I was working hard and and we were doing lots of great things, um, and and it might have contributed to change. But I, you know, if I'm I'm writing a policy paper, that might have an impact five years down the road. Will I know it? Probably not. Will it have shaped something? Perhaps. And I just had this sense that actually, I wanted to go back to something more hands-on if you like and more, more with more direct impact um and so those early years of action for conservation really delivered on that need for me personally you know i can remember our first residential camp we run we run residential camps where we take groups of young people out into the uk's national parks um these are young people who've got real leadership potential and but often young people who are from a mixture of backgrounds but some of whom won't have necessarily spent huge amounts of time out out in in nature in the uk um and i can remember on our first residential camp a young person who'd never seen the sea before and we were on, on the co welsh coast uh, the wild west of wales in pembrokeshire and you know being there for someone experiencing seeing the sea for the first time being on the beach for the first time you know makes it all worth it um those those experiences of seeing yeah. young people yeah you know connect and, and engage in a way they've never done before is immensely rewarding um and so mm. you know if i can change one person's one young person's life course and support them in 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 achieving things they want to achieve then then that's payment enough um for any commercial salary as far as i'm concerned yeah and what sort of leader are you and you know you pulled together a, a fantastic board and I, it wasn't really notable to me that you've put young people's voices onto that board which is which is fantastic because that's what you guys are all about but yeah what what sort of leader are you and what's it like having a board of trustees looking over you it's an interesting one because it's like having you know nine bosses as opposed to one um which i personally really like they they all have areas of expertise and experiences for me to draw on um so i consider myself really lucky really privileged to to be able to work with all of them and you know they're they're incredibly driven successful individuals um who 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 helped me and helped the team shape our vision and approach so yeah it's really it's really fantastic to um to be able to work with them and i forgot the first part of your question mark uh, yeah what sort of what sort of leader have you found found yourself to be because you know you're learning on the job right Yes, um, I am. <laughs> I'm con constantly learning, which I also feel very 
lucky for a role in which you know that does keep changing is is why i'm still here it's it's what makes things interesting i mean i i really believe in a model of leadership that's that empowers others to lead that you know enables others to to be successful um i think that's what's worked for us i think that's what we need for um the future of our institutions the future of the planet is our models of leadership in which in which others are you know that that are more diverse um in all senses of that word because there's more strength and resilience in in diversity and uh, and in building on individuals strengths and 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 kind of meshing those together so i sort of try to live by that approach we're a really close team i mean it's it's been another huge learning experience going from just two of us to um now 16 of us and and more in the coming year uh, and that changes the dynamics and you know there's inevitably more more structure uh, and perhaps more layers to the organization but we really seek to um sort of level power dynamics both within within the organization and 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 through our projects to kind of empower others and so that's that's yeah i that's one one aspect of um my leadership i suppose is 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 that desire yeah and creating that culture you know, because when you're in startup phase, it's often just you and a couple of others just focused on the prize. But um, yeah. suddenly you've got to worry yourself about organizational culture. And then you've got, I'm, um, you know, looking at your team, people who aren't necessarily in the office. You've got a sort of blend of, of um, virtual and in office. You know, it's quite tough for a leader in this modern times, but also exciting because people are around the world. Definitely. I mean, we've, yeah, we had COVID has been an interesting period of time for that reason um we under we underwent quite a lot of growth through through those those few years of the pandemic and so we brought on yeah quite a lot of team members who you know for, for a long period of time nobody met in person um and so building that connection across the team we have three offices manchester bristol and, and london people out you know in the in the day on the regular in schools out out running our programs so um creating that sense of community um and and building the culture of the organization has been at times tough and and also you know really interesting um as we navigate yeah this this new world of work that we're in and and, and these new working structures we're fortunate that we've got you know a, a young team who are who are really willing to experiment with those things and uh, and take a lot of ownership of how that culture's built um so it's been it's been a, a, a pleasure kind of growing the team um but yeah not not without its challenges too along the way and i'm just imagining your colleagues at wwf maybe looking back and saying May- maybe we should have backed um hendrika <laughs> because are there others are there other agencies out there who are also you know going with the you know inspiring young people engaging them educating them on on you know biodiversity and the environment is there is there sort of been almost full circle some people have come back to you and said hey i like what you did there yeah i mean i wwf to be fair to them will in, will incubate various um initiatives and have have done um over the years and and they were doing that while i was there i think perhaps i was just a little bit too early for them they now have a they've now developed you know roles within the organization to work with young people um a whole program of work with young people um and we've seen that across the uk um over over the past 
three or four years. Um, so I'd like to think that in some small way we've contributed as an organisation to that kind of flourishing in 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 work focused on young people. Huge credit, of course, to young people themselves, the youth climate movement, and and um, these young movements that are, are, are kind of really driving the conversation forward has also grown within that context. So there's this really lovely kind of interconnected network of activity now um both at ngo level and grassroots activism as well do you feel hopeful um for young people and do you feel hopeful in like do you, when you look at when you're interacting with the young people that you they have real clarity about what needs to happen and that it will happen in terms of you know saving the planet yes i mean i i I suppose my, the top line is yes. I feel hopeful. the The finer detail is is more complex. Um, I think, you know, the, the 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 youth movements for climate have been an incredible thing, and they've they've built the profile of these issues. They've changed the conversation. But I think also for a lot of young people who've been a part of that, you know, they've been articulating very clearly what needs to change, and you know, probably now however many years in are beginning to feel a bit jaded um with the lack of change the lack of action on the part of our, our global leaders and you know that's that's again hugely disempowering it's it's sort of undermining or has the the, the possibility of undermining their their kind of resilience and their um their drive and um, we obviously don't want that to happen um yeah one of the things that gets talked about a lot and i'm not a huge fan of the phrase is is climate anxiety this this idea that young people are you know becoming more and more anxious about the planet which you know they they obviously are we all are or we should all be and what we know is that one of the antidotes to feelings of anxiety a, a sense of disempowerment about the planet is to take action even at a local level and that isn't to say that we shouldn't keep in parallel pushing as hard as we can our global leaders to change things at scale and restructure the systems that need restructuring. We need systemic change and structural change, but also on a personal level for our own well-being, we need to be a part of positive change. Um, and in doing that, we will give rise to unexpected shifts, I think, in in attitudes and, and in approaches. Um, if, if these pockets of individual action group action community action you know they will build resilience together um we can't wait around for leaders to change everything so i kind of feel that you know that to a certain extent is what's missing from from the these youth movements for climate at this point in time they need opportunities to take action they need they need to feel a part of practical change um and we need to provide opportunities as a sector to to for them to do that so out of out of that realization in 2019, we launched a project called the Pempom Project, which is the world's largest youth-led nature restoration initiative. It's actually youth-led is a bit of a misnomer. It's 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 an intergenerational collaboration. It's a group of 25 young people, tenant farmers, and landowners in in the Brecon Beacons National Park in Wales, um, reimagining a future for that land um, and enacting it. And it's important to us for all sorts of reasons, both in terms of um, the impact we hope to have on bio biodiversity on that site, but also bio biocultural diversity on that site and that kind of richer um, and more connected um, interface between community, people and, and nature there. But also for us as a charity, it's, it's an opportunity to showcase a different way of doing things, um, a different form of decision making um, that, that harks back to 
my comments on leadership that gives young people the chance to be a part of the conversation and really lead from the outset in, in, in creating a vision for the future of some of our landscapes. And I, I think it's that kind of opportunity both to act and, and, and make decisions that we need to give to young people. That said, you know, there, there, are, there are strong narratives around young people's involvement and, and also, you know, we need to create space for them to be children, to be young people as well. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there's, a, there's an awful lot of burden that's placed on them. The, the conversation always goes, this generation's ruined it, you know, now it's up to you to solve it. And I don't think that's fair. Um, which is why I think this idea of intergenerational decision making that you know values young people for who a, for who they are it's not it's not expecting them to be experts um, it's expecting them to contribute from their perspective and and in the interests of their future but to work with others to work with adults to work with specialists scientists ecologists um, politicians and so on to work together to create a future that's fair for all is is to me. A, a compelling approach have you, have you had a call from you know british media to um comment on the sort of it's almost like a generational war that's perpetuated or portrayed in the media um sort of where activism meets you know the need for climate change but have you been called on and you know would you would you say actually activism sometimes has a place because you, you're talking about a system change but then there's those projects that you just talked about which lead to you know change in your neighborhood and ecosystems being protected but yeah what's your involvement been like in the in the activism yeah i mean it's a it's so i've definitely commented on on um various aspects of it i i you know we're we're quite low-key as a charity and, and we're sort of focused on doing and so that's well, certainly in this phase in in our growth, so that's where we are. Um, I wrote a book. I was contacted by Penguin to write a book about practical action young people can take, which came out last year. It's called How You Can Save the Planet, which you know very much focuses on you know the actions young people can take at a practical level um, where they are, but it also builds towards more campaigny more 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 activist based activities if you like so it, it sort of recognizes that you can start small um, and in starting small and then taking the first step you can build up to these bigger efforts um so i think yeah i you know there's a real trap that that we fall into when discussing practical action at a local scale and systemic global change and activism you know i think we need both and we can end up talking in silos about one or the other um, and criticizing those who advocate one or the other when really what we need is a, a holistic approach that looks to our roots but also looks to our our, our leaders and, and the systems that govern the way we live um, and how society operates. Hedrickus van Hinberg, thank you very much for joining me on Pepsi. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Really nice to meet you. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.